<laughs> beautiful. About looking at the teachings of Jesus. It's both beautiful and terrifying. If you've been paying attention at all over the past few weeks, we've been in some really difficult passages. Some encouraging passages, some challenging passages. It's almost as though you think you haven't figured out and then you read, keep reading and you come across something else that makes you go, wait, that's, I thought I had this together and now I got to wrestle with something else. That you think you understand how you're supposed to think, how you're supposed to act in the world, how things are supposed to go, how God works. And then it's like he comes out of nowhere and hits you in the jaw with a big right hook and says, wait. So the passage that we're going to be in today, I'm not sure that I have anything new or profound or amazing to say about it because you've probably heard, uh, some of you have probably heard way more sermons than I have. But I did... I, I, I did so much reading and so much listening this week about this passage. Um, it, it took me as long to filter out what I wasn't going to say as what I wanted to say. And what I believe the Spirit is leading me to, to, to tell us, for us to hear today. Last week, we were in Luke 14, where it was the parable of the great banquet, where people were being invited to the banquet with Jesus, with the one who was inviting. And there's a reality there that we have to be willing to accept the invitation. And then today, we're going to be in Luke 15. If you want to turn there, it'll also be on the screen we're going to read all 32 verses of this um, because it goes together. It's one parable with three different stories. But if we don't read the first couple of verses, we miss the context of what's going on and why Jesus tells these stories, which helps us to better understand what, why he's saying what he's saying. So let's read together Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and then goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says... Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who have no need to repent. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. 
the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed his pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he went and went, got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and his sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father and said, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed yours, but you never even gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May the Lord bless the hearing of his word. So this, a parable with three stories. Believe it helps us to think clearly about God's action in Jesus And I think it even points us more clearly to what Jesus himself was doing in the incarnation and coming to earth and and living and ultimately dying for our sake. But it wasn't just so that God wouldn't be mad at us so that he struck down his own son so we wouldn't feel the wrath of God. This is the, the, the notion of substitutionary penal atonement. I don't think that that's what God was doing in sending Jesus. It wasn't to appease his anger at us for sinning. God didn't send Jesus to say, take all of my wrath so that I don't have to give it to you, to to these other nasty people. That wasn't the nature or heart of God in sending Jesus. Rather, it was so that he could show us his beloved creation, that sin was defeated, 
And the thing that separated us from God in our own doing, God had made up the gap and he had come running to us so that we might be found alive again. So, we have a lot of work to do today. We have a lot to cover, and I don't want you to miss lunch, so I'm going to hurry. Everybody put on your seatbelts, and let's go. I believe that Jesus, as he was preaching, as he was telling these stories, was referring the, the Pharisees that were arguing against him, that were saying that he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, these egregious people that they didn't want to be associated with, these Gentiles, these unclean people. He was telling them that they have missed the point altogether. And I believe he was pointing to a passage that we know well, Psalm 23. It's a reminder of the great shepherd of the sheep, that God himself says that he will do what needs to be done as a shepherd to provide for, to care for, to bring back, to protect his people. And so the found sheep that we read about in the first few verses, the found coin, and the found sons are all a reminder of who God is as the great shepherd in Psalm 23. So, really quick, let's get a reference for Psalm 23. I know you know it, you've heard it a million times, but let's read it again really quick. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, Psalm 23 is also echoed in Ezekiel 34 and in Jeremiah as well. I think it's Jeremiah 37. Don't hold me to that. I I don't remember exactly. But this, this idea of the Lord being the shepherd and we, his people, are being gathered together by him. And this idea of being restored, this this. Even when they wander off, they get lost, they're restored. You know, he leads me in paths of righteousness. He restores my soul. Even Psalm 23 has this idea of the shepherd going to get the sheep and bringing them back within the fold, within the flock. They're cared for. They're given security. The rod and the staff, they comfort me. The rod was meant to protect them. The staff guided them as they might get lost. They're celebrated when they're in the house of the Lord. This is celebration. There's goodness. There's peace in the presence of the good shepherd. So back to our stories in Luke with that framework in mind. It's easy to think about the people who were lost. Because that's what happens initially. A sheep is lost, a coin is lost, a son is lost. 
But I want you to notice that in the first two stories that he tells in this parable, there's no mention of motive. There's no mention of what he does or or what, what the sheep do to get lost or how they're lost, or how the coin is lost. There's no mention of that. They're just simply lost. And the shepherd and the woman both seek and search to find it. This is not a call for us to go seek and search for those who are lost. It is a call for us to be found. It is a call for us When God, the good shepherd, comes looking for us to allow him to find us. The point of the first two parables, though, is to draw his hearers in, these Pharisees, these ones who were claiming that Jesus was eating and drinking with the wrong people. You can't be associated with them because they're going to make you dirty. They're going to make you unclean. It's like this story that I read on Facebook this week about um, four pastor's wives. One of them was pregnant and three of them weren't. And they go to a strip club to minister to the ladies there in the strip club. They take them gifts and they go, I can only imagine what the church people might actually think about us going into a strip club. And you can imagine someone, a woman who's seven months pregnant, her husband's the pastor of the church down there, going into a strip club what are people going to think but then she began to talk about the ministry that took place because she actually knew what was happening in these ladies lives she is in a constant text conversation with one of them so that they know that they have someone to lean on someone that they can trust and she said you know it was really interesting that the people that she talked to the ladies that were stripping in the strip club they had as normal a conversations as you do around the lunch table with, your, with the people that you interact with on an everyday basis. She goes, they're there, they have children, they're, they're trying to make it through life and pay the bills. This just happens to be the way that they figured out how to do it. They don't know a way out at this point. But they're not any worse than you or I. But the point of these first two stories is to draw these religious do-gooders in because they would agree that the shepherd going and finding the 99, uh, leaving the 99, finding the one and bringing it back in is a good thing. We won't disagree with that. They're going to agree that the shepherd, that that the woman losing uh, about a half a week's wages, which is a big deal then, Finding that coin and putting it back and celebrating is a good thing. They're going to agree with that without much argument. But then Jesus draws him in and then he grabs him by the collar and goes, you don't get it yet. And he tells the story about a young man, and I know you've heard this before, I'm not going to harp on this point, about a young man who comes to his father, and he says, basically, I wish you were dead, give me my third of the inheritance, because in the Jewish world, the younger son would only get a third, the oldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, but you didn't get the inheritance till after the father was dead, 
So essentially what the son says is, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance now. Forget you. And he takes, which the story doesn't say this, but you got to imagine, in order for him to be able to get the inheritance together, to be able to give him a third of all that they owned, He's going to have to go sell some property. He's going to have to go sell some cattle. It's going to take some time. It's not something that he can just snap his fingers and hand it off. Can you imagine the tension in that house? Waiting for his father to come back so that he can give him what he wants. The father doesn't question him. He doesn't smack him upside the head. Which, by the way, in Middle Eastern culture, most fathers would have said, Get out of here. You are no longer my son. Get out of my sight. Your inheritance can go somewhere else. Notice the father doesn't say that. He simply goes. He sells what he needs to so that he can give his son what he asked for. He simply gave him what he asked for. Now, he goes off and squanders his family's wealth. And there's a ceremony, a Jewish ceremony called the Kazaza Ceremony. And in this ceremony, there is, there is an expectation. If the son, younger son, goes off and squanders the family's wealth, that he is no longer accepted as part of the family or part of the community. So when he goes off and the famine comes and he loses everything he has, the reason he doesn't go crawling back to dad is because the second he gets to the city gates, the Kazaza ceremony is going to be enacted, which means that the whole community is going to come and they're going to grab a pot and they're going to throw it at his feet and break it, which symbolizes the broken relationship that he did. He is no longer part of the family. He chose to break relationship with the community and with his family. And until he goes and gets a job and earns back what he took from the family, he is no longer welcome. He is fully expecting that's what he's going to do. And so as he's sitting there with the pigs, this is not repentance. This is not him turning from what he did. He's trying to avoid the Kazaza ceremony. He's trying to avoid being ostracized from the community where he grew up. He's crawling back on his hands and knees begging for his dad to just give him a job so that he can earn his way back into the family. He's not repentant. He doesn't care. He doesn't want to turn from what he did. He's still thinking that he deserves to earn his way back into the family and that that's the way he's going to be accepted. The father instead, knowing that that is what is coming, he sees him a long way off. I want you to hear when you hear that. He's outside the city gates. He hasn't made it here. The son sees the city gates and he's fully expecting broken pottery at his feet and he's going to have to turn and go back and figure out how to re-earn that third of the inheritance, the third of the family's wealth. But instead the father runs. A Middle Eastern man of dignity never ever runs. That's not dignified. You see eight-year-old little boys in their robes. They run. 
they basically pull up their robes so that they can run. They're revealing their underwear. It is not dignified for a man to run. A man would stand there and wait. Now a mother, on the other hand, a mother will run. And so in this instance, the father acts like a loving mother and runs to his son. Before he gets to the city gates, and he throws his arms around him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him, because the great love of the father is like that of the great love of a mother. And he says, as the son is trying to give his excuse, the speech that he rehearsed in the, in the pods so that he can earn his way back. He says, go grab my robe and the family signet ring and put it on him. And the son's like, well, dad, hold on. Let me just make me a certain. He goes, hush. Go grab the robe. Go grab the ring and bring sandals to put on his feet. There is no earning your place in my house. There is no position that you can regain to be able to make up the difference of what it needs. You are my son. You don't have to earn this. You don't have to to gain it by your own efforts. What you simply have to do is accept my costly love. It cost me my son and I'm willing to give it back so that I can have my son back in my family. All the son that we typically call the prodigal son had to do was be found and then accept the love of the father. Can you imagine what the Pharisees were thinking? What they were feeling? What they... (laughs) This is one of the stories that Jesus tells that gets him killed. Because it's so contrary to the way that they think, the way that they function. Because I earn God's love by doing what is right, by being in the right places, by being with the right people, by doing the right things. And this younger son who threw it in my face is accepted back just like that? Absolutely, because you're nothing like the good shepherd. You're nothing like the father. This is not a call for us to be like the father in this story. This is a call for us to be found and made alive by being given life by the father. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Because he kills the fattened calf, which, by the way, would be part of the inheritance. This is what they save for, I mean, they're fattening up the calf for a humongous celebration. Very possibly at the father's death. 
and they kill it and start cooking it. You can imagine the older brother, he's out in the field and he smells. I thought about cooking a steak for you this week, but I didn't want to make you like hate me. So, um, But he smells the, the steak cooking or the brisket smoking, right? Come on, walk me here. He hears the commotion of the party. He comes walking back in. He's curious. He says, what's going on to a servant? He says, your brother, the one who was lost is found and the one who was dead is alive. Your father killed the fattened calf, so we're celebrating. Come in the house. The old brother says, no, 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 no. I don't think so. But I want you to notice what the father does. He doesn't say, well, forget you then, stay out there and just whine and moan. He goes to the older brother and finds him. And says, what are you doing? All that I have is yours. There was never a moment when you didn't have it. This is your party too. Now get your rear end in there and let's party. Here's the thing though. This is, this is the difficult and beautiful part of this story. The younger son who made these terrible decisions, and my guess is, is not like most of us who are in this room. Most of us are not the younger brother. Because we've grown up in church, we've grown up being told what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to do it, and we think that when we don't do it right, that in that moment, when we don't do one thing right, that we are the prodigal son. Most of you have not had Moments like that where you spit in the face of God and said, forget you. You're as good as dead to me. Most of you haven't had moments of like, like that. You may be more like the sheep who just kind of wandered off because, ooh, that grass tastes good and I'm going to keep going over here. Well, I don't know. hey, look, there's a squirrel. Uh, I, that's probably more like what you did. You didn't even recognize what was happening. But God came and brought you back. Most of you are not the younger brother. Most of us are the older brother. That we want other people to have to come to God the way that we come to God. We want other people to have to approach God the way that we approach God. We want other people to have to perform the way that we perform to get what we get. I have an acquaintance that on Facebook the other day, he was, he's, he's spewing vitriolic mess about how God can't possibly be at work because he's not getting what he wants because he's done all these right things. He's done all the right things and God didn't give me what I wanted. That's not the way God works. God gives you what you need. He provides for you. He protects you. He feeds you. He shepherds you. 
He goes and finds you when you're lost. But if you think that God's an almighty vending machine, you done got it wrong and you went to older brother status. Because the second we're standing outside the house going, why is everybody else going to celebrate and I'm not getting nothing? Where's mine? We've gone to older brother status. And we've made it about what we get out of the relationship rather than being in relationship. You see, the reality is what this text points to is that there are two types of sin that are on display. There's two types of sin. Ken Bailey talks about this. He says that th- there are, uh, there's the sin of the lawbreaker and there's the sin of the lawkeeper. I want you to hear that. You can do everything right and still be in sin. I wasn't taught that growing up. One breaks the relationship with the father by going against what the Father says. The other breaks relationship with the Father while doing what He says. Both are wrong and both have a broken relationship. The older brother says, essentially, if this isn't for me and what I've done for you, look, I've been here working all along. I'm working for my relationship with you and what you're ultimately going to give me. Haven't I done something enough to earn something from you? You didn't even give me a goat. By the way, I don't know if you've ever eaten goat meat, but what a settle. Come on now. Steak, goat, really? Come on. Come on, go for the good stuff. I don't know. Um, But what we see here is that the father went to the older son just as he went to the younger son. He went and found him and offered him a place at table. The table that was already his. The problem for the older brother is that he chose not to accept the invitation to be found. He was already there. But he wanted his own merit and his own value to be what made him worth celebrating. And the older son chooses not to accept the costly love of the father. Notice here that it's not by either of their doing or their worthiness that they are invited to be a part of the banquet. Rather, on both occasions, it is because of the costly love of the father that looks an awful lot like a mother. Being willing to take the shame, the embarrassment, the cost of relationship on his own shoulders for the sake of his sons, he seeks them in order to give them life. 
But the older brother chooses not to accept it and so is left out of the banquet by his own choice, not by the father's. The invitation to the banquet is open for all of us. The question is, will you choose to accept to be found? Not to go find God. And I'm not talking about what it looks like to be in relationship because there is some give and take there. But the question is, are you willing to be found by doing right or even in your wrongdoing? The invitation is open for all. Will we accept the costly love of the Father, the great shepherd, the woman who seeks to find her coin, and accept our place at the table that's already been prepared? Isn't this why we celebrate Eucharist? I know we don't use that word very often. It means blessing. It means thanksgiving. Communion. We celebrate communion with the Father. It's the invitation to the great banquet where he's killed the fattened calf because he's celebrating the fact that we are found through the blood of Jesus. Today, the invitation is open to you. Not to earn, not to do something to buy your place at the table. It's open because of the costly love of the Father that he gives to you regardless of what you've done. Will you accept to be found? Will you have your head anointed with oil and take your place at table in the presence of the enemy? The goodness of mercy in God is at hand and we are invited to table with him. Today, the invitation to accept God's costly love is at hand. God's hand is being held out to you. When we gather around the table to remind us of God's costly love demonstrated in Jesus, we are accepting it. We are accepting God's invitation to be found. That's the beauty of a God who loves us so fiercely that he is willing to take the difficult relationship restoration on himself. So today, we're going to gather around the table and we're going to celebrate. Because in our partaking and eating of the bread and drinking of the cup, we are accepting to be found. That is what we are stating by taking the bread and the cup every week that we are found by God through the body and blood of Jesus. The sheep, the coin, and both sons had nothing to offer that God didn't already have. What they simply offered was their acceptance of God's mission to restore us to relationship with Him. The table's prepared. 
will you accept to be found? We're going to gather around the table. There's three of them set up. There's two in the back and one here. After I pray, I challenge you to get up and accept the invitation of God to be found. As you take the bread and as you take the cup, maybe even look at somebody around you and say, I've been found. I've been made alive in Christ through the body and the blood of Jesus. If you can't get up, if you're uncomfortable, stay there. We'll we'll, we'll come find you. We'll come share that with you there. That's okay. We are going to celebrate around the table the costly love of the Father, the good shepherd who finds his sheep. I'm going to pray. We're going to take both the bread and the cup together and then we'll close this time in celebration and singing a a couple more songs. Um, Let's pray and then we'll gather around the tables together. God, we thank you for seeking to find us, for being the good shepherd who calls us to simply accept your offer of a place at table with you. You are so good to us and you've given us such an amazing, costly love that it's, it's almost offensive. But God, I don't want to be offended at your love. I want to accept it. I want to feel it. I want to know it down in my gut. So today as we celebrate, We celebrate that we are made alive through your costly love that we find in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And through that, we are made alive. We thank you. It's in Jesus we pray and the church said, amen.